Judges chapter 13. We're hanging in there, making our way through this book, and we've come to the last of the judges uh, that's going to be a part of our study here this summer. Judges chapter 13, as we begin the life of Samson today, I titled this message, Most Likely to Succeed. But I want to begin by telling you a, a more recent story. It began in 1983. A baby boy was born in Youngstown, Ohio, to a single mother. Her name was Michelle Claret. She named her boy Maurice, and his upbringing was rough. Michelle struggled to make ends meet and to keep her son off of the mean streets. She could only do so much, and young Maurice, as many boys do, ran with the wrong crowd. And at age 14, he was actually arrested for breaking and entering. Despite all the trouble that Maurice got into, if he had one thing going for him, it was that God made this young man to do one thing, and that is to run the football. When high school coaches recognized Maurice's talent, they instantly recruited him, and he ended up becoming a major turning point in his life when he stepped onto the football field. He shined in high school, and he was actually signed by the Ohio State Buckeyes to play running back. His freshman year in 2002 launched him into the national spotlight. He started as a freshman. Listen to this, sports fans. He rushed for over 1,200 yards in his freshman year and scored 18 touchdowns. Sports writers instantly compared his talent and his ability to that of uh, greats like Herschel Walker and Bo Jackson. Maurice Claret actually helped the Buckeyes to a 14-0 undefeated season, capped off in the 2002 National Championship, where he actually scored the game-winning touchdown against Miami in overtime. But it appeared that Maurice Claret had everything that a young man could want. He had fame, he had talent, he had the promise of an NFL career worth millions of dollars. But this young man of strength and talent had some character issues that would plague him. In fact, he would only play one season with Ohio State. The reason is because he got in trouble. He got in trouble with coaches and disagreements and that disqualified him from playing on the field. And without football in his life, he seemed to just spiral downward out of control and he reverted to his old ways of crime. And so Claret was actually implicated in several armed robberies, and he led police on a high-speed chase. He was eventually arrested, and he was tried, and he was put in jail for three years. And when his mugshot was put up beside him running the football, those pictures from Sports Illustrated, fans who had loved him and cheered for his exploits on the field could only shake their head in disgust. How could somebody with so much talent and so much potential seemingly throw it all away? Sometimes we don't have a good answer for that in, in our lives when we see that happen to either ourselves or others. But stay tuned, we'll hear more about what happened in Mr. Claret's life. But I begin that way because there are few things more cringeworthy than watching a talented, gifted individual crash and burn. And yet we seem to see these stories writ large, not only over the lives of athletes, but politicians and celebrities, musicians, and yes, even 
ministry leaders and pastors. I have coined the phrase or used the phrase the Samson Syndrome before. That happens when you have a person of great unusual, God-given talent and ability who succumbs to their own sins and character flaws. There's a lot in common between Maurice Claret and Samson, and you'll notice that as I continue through this message. But you remember your high school yearbook, don't you? Some of you may have tried to forget it. But everybody remembers opening up that section in your high school yearbook, and every yearbook I think is probably the same. They have a, a side dedicated to the class awards. You have the most studious. You have the most popular. You have most athletic. Mr. and Mrs. Inca High School or Owen High School or Irwin High School or wherever you went. Mr. and Mrs. Class Spirit. And then you have one category, most likely to succeed. If Samson would have went to your high school, he would have been in that category. Most likely to succeed. Because when you read his story, beginning in Judges 13, here was a guy who had it all. He was gifted. He was anointed. He had great parents. And yet, despite all these advantages... His own worst enemy was himself. Now, just to give you a brief overview as we start Samson's life, there's more space devoted to Samson than any of the other judges. And his victories actually prompted the writer of Hebrews chapter 11 to enter his name in the hall of faith. That's Hebrews 11, uh, verse 32. He's probably the most popular of the judges. You learn about him in VBS in Sunday school if you grew up in church. And yet, if you study his life, we know him for his feats of strength, but yet his behavior is the worst out of all the judges. His story, like I said, begins here in Judges 13, where we read of his miraculous birth. And I can't think of a Bible hero with more of a promising start than Sam. He has a divine anointing. He has godly parents. He has a special destiny as Israel's deliverer, and yet his whole life story is one of tragic defeat. What could have been, he goes from a champ to a chump. Warren Wiersbe wrote these words in his commentary about Samson. He said he was bold before men, but Samson was weak before women. Empowered by the Spirit of God, he yielded his body to the appetites of the flesh. Called to declare war on the Philistines, yet he fraternized with the enemy he fought the Lord's battles by day and disobeyed the Lord's commandments by night, given the name Samson, which means sunny or sunshine. He ended up in darkness, blinded by the very enemy he was supposed to conquer. So we're going to study for the next few weeks Mr. Sunshine, Samson. And like many of us, Samson, as you will see, is a walking contradiction. He's a broken Savior, as many of them were in the book of Judges. And I think you will be surprised at how this critically flawed Old Testament hero actually points us to our need for Christ and our need for a perfect Savior, a perfect and sinless Deliverer. Now, what do we notice here about Samson today? First off, as we open chapter 13, I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Number one, the promise of Samson. Now read with me, if you will, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. 
This is the seventh time in the book of Judges that we see this sin cycle repeated. It's deja vu all over again. Notice that the Philistines are the bad guys this time. It was the Midianites earlier and before that other groups. But the 40 years of the Philistine domination is actually the longest period of oppression uh, by another enemy. And notice that this time the pattern breaks in a specific way in that the people do not even cry out for a deliverer. If you read the previous sin cycles, those previous six, they always get to a low point and the people get on their knees, they start praying and they cry out that God would send them a deliverer. They don't even do that this time. In other words, this shows how far God's people have fallen. They've become so used to living in the darkness, they don't even remember what it's like to live in the light. Now the Philistines, who were these pagan people. Well, they were a fierce enemy who oppressed Israel in at least two major ways. First, they deprived Israel of iron. In other words, they did not allow the Israelites to have any weapons of their own, even farming implements. So there was no way to wage war even if they wanted to. And the second tactic of the Philistines was that they encouraged intermarriage with Israel. And that way, they could introduce idolatry and paganism into the Israel's worship life and what this strategy was, the point of it was to assimilate Israel into the Philistine culture. To make them indistinguishable from them. So that's the context in which we get this promise of Samson that comes in verse 2. And there's two major things about this promise. First, I want you to see his supernatural conception. He had a supernatural conception. Verse 2, the Bible says... There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren, and you have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now the nation is gradually sinking into this political and moral quicksand. And yet here the promise of Samson is given to a childless couple. Boy, haven't we seen that before in the Old Testament. God always loves to come to the barren, broken woman who can't have a child even if she wanted to and promises there will be a miraculous birth. Now Samson is unique among all the judges because his was supernaturally announced and his birth was accomplished by only the power of God. And like I said, you've seen this pattern before if you're familiar with the Bible. When God wants to do something great in the world, what does he do? He doesn't send an army. He sends a baby. Isn't that interesting? And remember, Israel was started when God promised a couple of geriatrics. Abraham and Sarah, a son named Isaac. When the Lord delivered the people from Egyptian slavery, what did He do? He sent baby Moses down the Nile River. And that was a turning point. Moses was raised in the house of the Pharaoh. Pharaoh paid for his food, his boarding, his upbringing, his education. And actually paid and raised for the man who was going to deliver Israel out of slavery. Only God could do that. Centuries from this moment here, God is going to send a miraculous son to another peasant couple, Mary and Joseph in the New Testament, and they shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save the people from their sins. 
So when God wants to do something amazing, a great turning point, when God wants to turn the world upside down and have a new beginning, He always sends a baby into the mix. Why does God do this? Well, children represent a new beginning, don't they? A fresh life, a new start. And this ray of sunshine, Mr. Sunshine, if you will, Samson, is going to bring the dawn of new hope to Israel's dark day. And babies are fragile, aren't they? God loves to use the weak things of the world to defeat the mighty, doesn't He? The foolish things of the world to confound the wise, according to Paul, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 27. So when God wants to wage war, He doesn't do it the way that man does. He uses the avenue and the channel of weakness and what is most unlikely to you and me. He had a supernatural conception. Then also notice this, verse 4 and 5. He had a special calling. The Bible says, as we continue reading, Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, another aspect of Samson's uniqueness was that he was to live under something called the Nazarite vow. That's what we read of in the text there, where he tells the mother, don't cut his hair, uh, there's not to be any drinking of wine. All of that is laid out as a holy pledge in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, if you want to study that on your own. But a person who took the Nazarite vow was publicly dedicating themselves to God as they pursued a special calling or a mission. Now, that word Nazarite, it means to separate or to consecrate. And the idea behind this was that the person is separating themselves from the rank and file of the world and they're holding themselves to a holy standard because they're asking God to anoint them and empower them to do a mighty thing for Him. So they were to separate themselves from the impurities of the world so that they could fully focus and be dedicated to God. Now, in Numbers chapter 6, as you study the Nazarite Valley, it was to be voluntary. But this one was compulsory. And it always came with some non-negotiables. Number one, no drinking wine or consuming of any grape products. Number two, there was to be no contact with the dead. And number three, there would be no cutting of the hair. Now later on, we're going to see that Samson violates every single one of these in his life. But that was the Nazarite vow. And his mother hears of the special calling, the special destiny that's upon Samson's life. And so this mirrors for you and I a calling that we have. God hasn't called us to take a Nazarite vow, but God has called us in the the clarion call of Jesus Christ to take up a cross and to follow Him, to separate from the world, to live a holy and a blameless life before men, to put God first, to focus on His kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. Now I wrote this down in my notes as I was studying today, or this week, on this calling. And here's what the Lord gave me. The call to serve God is a call to separate from the world. I don't know where some of the preachers today get the idea uh, that you can call yourself a Christian, live for the Lord, claim His name, and go out and live just like everybody else the other six days of the week. I don't read that in my Bible. 
I read a call to take up a cross, to be different, to live holy, to do my best to hate sin that put Jesus on the cross, to not think like the world, not walk in the patterns of the world, and to be different because Jesus has made a difference in my life. Not because I'm holier than thou or because I'm better than anybody. Grace tells me that I'm not, but that I understand that to claim the name of Jesus is a special thing. And I don't want to bring shame or uh, any kind of uh, mark upon His name that would detract from the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know where some of these preachers just get the idea that you can live any way you want to, uh, that it's happy-go-lucky, that it's prosperity and good times, and it doesn't matter uh, what you do on Saturday night, or, or what you drink, or what you watch, or, or how you live. Friend, that ain't in the Bible. Maybe that's one of the problems with the church today is we've lost the idea of the holiness of God. The Samson was called to separate from the world and it came to his parents that they were also to separate themselves. Remember what Jesus said though in Luke 9.23? Here's our calling. Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Boy, that one word right there makes a big difference. Daily, doesn't it? It's hard to live the Christian life on Monday. It's hard to live the Christian life on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's hard. It's, in fact, it's impossible. You can't do it in your flesh. You have to have the Holy Spirit. And you have to give your surrender yourself every day to Him. Just as Samson had to surrender his life and his parents had to surrender their lives to this holy calling. They couldn't live like anybody else because they had been called to do a job unlike anybody else. And by the way, you know, yesterday marked a, a critical anniversary in our nation, didn't it? We just commemorated the 20th anniversary of, of 9 11. And when you talk about calling, understanding that you've got a, a special desire and a focus upon your life. Yesterday was a kind of one of those days where we look back and we think about those who fulfilled their calling. I, I was just flipping through reading about some of the brave men and women who did that on our behalf. You know, one of the names etched in the 9-11 memorial in New York City is a man named Timothy Stackpole. I'd never heard of him until I started reading. Since childhood, listen to this, Tim Stackpole only wanted to do one thing. He wanted to be a firefighter. You talk about a calling, right? To run into the fire when everybody else wants to run out. Listen to what happened to this man. In 1998, Tim nearly died in a fire when he sustained third-degree burns over 40% of his body. After he recovered, he returned to the force despite advice from some family and friends that told him he could retire and live the rest of his life comfortably. But how many of you know when you're called by God to do something, you can't just quit? You can't just throw in the towel and live the easy life. When you're called, God take my life if I don't fulfill it. Tim served with such devotion that he was promoted to captain. And you know when the first day he served in that role was? On 9-11. His first day on the job as captain. He was a first responder that rushed into the blazing second tower. And when it did, it collapsed and it took his life. But you know what? His life was not in vain because as the story continued, I read that his son 
followed in his daddy's footsteps because his dad answered a call and lived a different life and inspired another generation to go out and to be different. Here's a man, I don't know if he was a Christian or not, whether he knew the Lord or not, but he understood his calling. That was to lay down his life to fulfill this job description given to him. And the call for you and I is no less demanding. Think of it. God called Samson even before he was born. That means that God saw something and knew something about his future that only God could know. And friend, the same is true for you and I. God calls us not on the basis of who we are in that particular moment, but who he knows we will be according to his grace, his anointing, his equipping. So friend, when he comes by you and he says, follow me, don't say no, say yes to the calling of God, you won't regret it. So that was number one, the promise of Samson. Then I want you to notice with me, number two, I want you to notice the parents of Samson. The parents of Samson. Now, we'll begin reading in verse 6. And the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said unto me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child is to be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. And so the woman ran and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared. Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, When your words came true, what is to be of this child in the manner of his life? And what is to be his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I have commanded, please let her observe. And we'll pause right there. So when Manoah learned that he was about to be the father of Israel's next deliverer, he was understandably a little bit overwhelmed. His wife hears the news first. She comes and tells him. He gets down on his knees when he hears this news and says, Lord, please send the same word to me through the angel as you did my wife. And God concedes. Now, this is a critical response because it tells us something about the home in which Samson grew up in. I get the idea that this is a family of faith where dad is wise enough to recognize I'm not equipped. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the ability. I don't have everything that I need to raise this child. I need God's help to be the man that God has called me to be. He does what any good father would do in the moment. He gets down on his hands and knees and he says, God, how do I raise this son? Here's what I wrote in my, in my notes this week. Way of application. 
We can't be a perfect parent for our kids, but we can be a praying parent. We can't be a perfect parent, but we can be a praying parent. That's who I see Manoa was in this moment. And Mrs. Manoa, we don't even know her name. I remember back on the day when my first child was born. <laughs> 23 hours of labor. My, oh my. I had to convince Caitlin, you need the epidural, honey. <laughs> she was going to go through just natural birth. But I told her, I, as the walls were about to come down in that little delivery room, and she was about to just lose it, I said, just go ahead and get it. Because you don't get a merit badge at the end that says, I did this all natural. When that back labor set in, <laughs> Katie barred the door. 23 hours of labor. She was utterly exhausted. I don't know how the, the woman did it. But God has specifically created the woman to be able to sustain that kind of burden. But I remember that after the, Daniel was born, there was a break there for the next day. I said, I'm going home. I need, I need a shower. I got to leave the hospital. So I went home, and I remember all the events of those 23 hours playing through my head. And at the time, we were in a little rental house, and I went and I sat on the edge of the bed. And the weight of everything that had just happened, you know, your whole life changes in one day when they put that baby in your hands and say, here you go, Dad. I sat on the edge of that bed, and the emotions just got to me. I didn't cry in the hospital. I, I didn't break down in the delivery room, but when it was just me at home and it was God speaking to me and the real, realization of what had just happened in my life, I broke down on the edge of that bed and I began to pray, Oh God, help me to be the kind of dad that I need to be. Lord, show me what I need to learn. God, help me to step up to the plate and to, to raise this child the way that you would see fit. And you know the next thing I remember? I remember waking up about... Five hours later, I had sat on the edge of that bed and I had fallen asleep praying. And I woke up about five hours later and I got, got back to the hospital. Where were you at? When Daniel was just a few days old, we took him into the doctor to get him examined. And we went to a, a, we have a great doctor, great pediatrician. He's a Christian man. Uh, Daniel got his first exam. He was 100% healthy. As we were leaving the the doctor scribbled something down on a prescription pad, tore it off, he handed it to me. He said, this is for you, Dad. And I opened it up, and you know what the prescription said? Pray for Daniel every day. You know, one moment that I have always emblazed in my mind is as a kid. I think I was probably about seven or eight years old, waking up early one morning. I was always an early riser. And I tiptoed into the living room. And as I got into the living room, I felt like I was intruding in upon a holy moment. Like I was coming in on a scene that, oh man, this is, this is something of great holiness and great uniqueness. I saw my daddy there on his face laying in the living room floor with his Bible open. And my daddy was praying. And as a youngster, when you see that and when you realize that that's the walk of your dad, that has an impact upon you. And you say, I don't know what it is, what he's got with God, but what daddy's got, I want that for me. Yeah. 
And here's the, the thing that I'm trying to get across to you parents, moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas. The best thing that your grandchildren or children can see is to walk in upon you in a holy moment where they see that you have a real and a transforming and a daily relationship with the God of the universe. And no, you're not a perfect parent. You don't have it all together. That's why you're on your face before God because you realize I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I need God to help me to raise my children. That's the important lesson that I see here today about the home. Notice this. The family is God's training ground to form the next generation in the faith. Let me say that again. The family is God's training ground to form the next generation in the faith. Think about this, friend. When God wanted to save Israel, He sent a child to a peasant couple with no power, no prestige, and no hope. They couldn't even have children if they wanted to. Why them? Because there was something different about Mr. and Miss Manoah. They had faith in God despite the difficult hand that life had dealt to them. They believed in God and walked with Him despite the fact that the rest of the nation had gone into immorality and idolatry. And there was something different about these parents that God could entrust the raising of this child to them. Now where are we today in modern America? We're a lot like Israel because if you haven't noticed yet, America is in a death spiral. Folks say, oh, if we can just hold on till 2022, if we can just hold on till 2024, another election. Friend, the way things are going, I don't even know if we're going to make it that far. America is in a death spiral. You know one of the reasons why? Because Satan and our godless media and the woke cancel culture and the LBGT agenda have successfully dismantled the sacred institutions of traditional marriage and the family. And if you are raising kids right now, if you're in my position right now and you're reading this passage, you understand where Manoah was in the godless darkness of his culture. He looked to God and said, God, how can I raise a child in such a wicked generation as today? God, if you want me to raise this baby, you're going to have to give me grace and help. You understand what I'm saying to you? I've asked God, God, how can I raise my kids in a country that I don't even recognize anymore? This isn't the America of the 80s and 90s that I grew up in. How do I raise my kids in a country where they're telling children at the age of six, you get to choose whether to be a boy or a girl? How do I raise my kids in a, in a system where they teach each other to hate one another because of a skin color, because of quote-unquote white privilege or whatever the label is, God, how can I raise children and bring up another generation in a world that is so crooked, so lost, so backward, so perverted, and so in need of God? You understand how applicable this is to you and me today? Israel was sinking into the darkness, but oh... The goodness of God. There was one ray of sunshine. No wonder His name was sunshine. There was one single ray of hope that was bursting forth from one little poor 
family in Israel that God said, this is the plan, this is the couple. And here's what I see today. If America is going to be spared, if this nation has any hope, it's because... God begins a saving work in the hearts of parents today. It's got to begin in the family. We've got to recapture the importance of the family over again because God picked out one couple in Israel and said, I'm going to work with them. They they will be the ones who will raise the deliverer. And I'm telling you today that if we have hope of bringing about a revival or a turning away in our nation, it's got to start with moms and dads who take it seriously and say, this is my family, these are my children, this is my marriage, I'm going to pray more, I'm going to read the Bible to them, I'm going to get them in the house of God, because we're in war. This is not the way it used to be. We're in the minority. And friend, we've got to put God in the middle of the home once again. God in the middle of the family once again, because this family had an encounter with the angel of the Lord and their whole lives changed based on the power and the presence of God in their home. Oh, what God would do in our churches, in our marriages, in our schools, yes, even in our government, if parents and moms and dads said, these are my kids, this is my family, this is my faith, government, you can't have them, school systems, we won't stand for this, media, we reject your narrative, We are raising our family to be honorable and holy to God. This story story gives me so much hope because Israel was so backslid and so messed up when the angel of the Lord came to Mr. and Mrs. Manoah and that means that there's hope for me today. That God has not abandoned His people. That there is still hope. That if God worked in this environment, He can work in today's world. God help us in our homes. Everything changed because of a surprise intrusion of God into the life of this family. It was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, if you want to know for fact. That's who the angel of the Lord is in the Old Testament. It's Christ revealing Himself and His glory before Bethlehem. Now there's a cryptic phrase. Notice, if you keep reading, in the text it says, let's pick it up again. Notice what Manoah says. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, verse 15, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was speaking to the angel of the Lord. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. (laughs) Now think about this, friend. Just pause right here. He's actually talking to Christ in the Old Testament way of expression. There's a cryptic response that the angel of the Lord or Christ gives here about His name being wonderful. Isn't that significant? Because what does Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 says? 
It says, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Notice Manoah here. Did he get the answer to his question? He did not. Because this is very comforting. This, uh, this parent is concerned over how to raise this child, what kind of world they're going to live up in, they're going to grow up in. And God, the angel of the Lord, doesn't give him the response that he thought he needed. And that's the way that God usually works with us. When we ask God what to do, God doesn't always give us the direct answer. Instead, He gives us a glimpse of who He is. That's what the angel of the Lord was doing here in this moment. We want explanation. God gives us revelation. We ask for a timeline. God says trust. We ask God for a plan to execute. He simply says believe in my promises. And as I read that, I am hopeful today. Because the same God who spoke to Mr. and Mrs. Manoah is the same God who speaks to me through this word and in the person of His Holy Spirit. And I have hope today. Yes, it's dark. Yes, the world is going to hell on a runaway train. I don't know what the future is going to be even a month from now because the way things change so fast. But here's a young man who had a unique destiny. And God helped them. God came to them. God blessed them. God instructed them. And I'm telling you as a parent, if you're in that position today, if you're a grandparent and you're in that position today, looking to the next generation, there is hope. There is help. And it comes from the presence of God in your life and in my life. I think about that too. God, what kind of world am I leaving for my children What's this world going to be like for my three when they get of age to live as adults? And I get worried and I get fearful as a parent, just as Manoah and his wife had to have felt. But friend, God, keep in mind, is sovereign. And God called Samson for such a time as that. And I have to believe that God will do the same for my children and for my family. And I need to realize as a parent, I'm not just raising a child. I'm not just living the American dream. If I am of God and that child is entrusted to my care, I have the position as a father or a mother to raise that child in the fear and the admonition of the Lord because they could be tomorrow's warrior. They could be tomorrow's preacher. They could be to one tomorrow who raises up to help a generation see the light that the hope is in Jesus Christ. That's the promise of Samson. And the parents of Samson, I'm going to finish with this. I want you to notice something. The power of Samson. Number three as we close today. The power of Samson. Verse 24 and 25. Look at this. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew. And the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Maniadan between Zorah and Eschatol. Notice this. The strength of Samson's life came from the special anointing of the Holy Spirit that began in his birth. Do you realize today that our relationship to the Holy Spirit is different than it was 
in Samson's time. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in, in our lives today is much fuller and much deeper today than it was some 3,000 years ago. Because today, you're not just anointed if you're a child of God. You are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Whereas in the Old Testament, the Spirit would rest upon people for a short time to do a specific task. But everywhere you go and everything that you do, you have the power of the Holy Spirit residing in you. Now as we study Samson, you're going to notice. When he was under the Spirit, he did mighty things for God. But when he operated under the flesh, that's when he tarnished his witness and he got into sin. And don't we all have that same struggle today? Paul said in Galatians 5, he said, If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Two passions beat within my chest. One is foul, the other is blessed. The one I love, the other I hate. The one I feed will dominate. Which one are you feeding in your life, friend? The Spirit or the flesh? Here's what I wrote. We can have God's blessing on our life not by getting more of the Holy Spirit, but by submitting more to the Holy Spirit. You can't have more of the Spirit than what we have, but He can have more of us. Samson did not always live up to that, but at least his parents started him off on the right way. You say, Derek, what's the point of all this? To point us to Jesus. How so? If you go back to verse 5, and I'm done with this. In verse 5, notice the announcement of the angel to Mrs. Manoah, the mother. It said, He shall begin to save Israel. He shall begin. Meaning he won't finish it. He won't complete it, but he's going to start something. Samson starts a saving work that will be picked up later on by David, who will slay the Philistine giant Goliath, same group of people, and then it's ultimately going to be completed by whom? Jesus Christ. Because, as strange as it may sound for such a flawed man, Samson is an Old Testament picture of Jesus who is to come, at least in his birth. Notice this. Samson's birth was prophesied and announced by an angel, just like Jesus. Samson's birth was a miraculous conception. So was Jesus, except not to a barren woman, but to a virgin woman. Samson was a Nazarite, and Christ was a Nazarene. Samson was anointed by the Holy Spirit for feats of strength, but Christ was anointed by the Holy Spirit to perform signs and wonders. Samson's mission was to begin to save Israel and Christ's mission as told by the angel Gabriel was to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1 and verse 21. Do you see how this is pointing to Christ? And that's where our hope and that's where our focus must be. And in all of this, here's how I sum it up. I see the rich grace of God in this story because God sends a deliverer to a people who don't even know how to cry out to God anymore. And this child is going to be raised by a woman 
who didn't even have the hope of being a mother, a woman so insignificant that the Bible does not even record her name. And friend, oh, do you hear me today? That is grace. When God steps into a hopeless situation and speaks to a helpless people, thank God He sends the blessing and the grace when we're not even looking for it. Thank God that He chooses the weak and the unknown to change the world through. Thank God He can reach down further than we can reach up. Thank God He's still on the throne. And if there was hope for a deliverer in that day, how much more do we have today knowing that our deliverer has come and is victorious and is ruling and reigning and soon returning. You remember Maurice Claret? He was a lot like Samson. God-given athletic ability to run the ball. But he blew it. Here's what he said in an interview. He said, when I was in the courtroom and I saw the hurt on my mama's face and I knew I had disappointed her and I had let down so many people, he said, I realized that I squandered everything. He went to prison for three years but in prison, he got a chance to do something he'd never done before. He started reading the Bible. Watch out now. When people start reading the Bible, things happen. He said, as I read the Bible, I became conscious of how my sins affected other people. Isn't that a great lesson we all need to learn? He was released from prison. He went one day to a fitness center to work out when a man approached him recognized him and introduced himself. Hello, Mr. Maurice. He said, my name is Pastor Roy Hall. You don't know me, but I know you. He said, I'm starting a Bible study. Would you like to come and join? Maurice said this, the Bible began to impact me tremendously. And I thank God for putting that little pastor in my life to show me that what I needed most was a relationship with Jesus Christ. It wasn't long until that little pastor Roy led Maurice to Jesus Christ. He started getting involved in church and the pastor asked him, what do you want to do with your life now? He said, I want to share my testimony and tell others how to be strong in Christ. And I want them to know, no matter how much you've messed up, that I know a Jesus who can give a second chance. Amen. That's grace, and that's my God. A God of grace who came to a little peasant family and said, I've got a surprise for you. You're going to be raising the deliverer. And there's hope. And friends, don't we need that today? Need the hope of God in our lives, in our families, as we're in such a dire situation in our country and in our church. As our musicians are coming, maybe something in the message spoke to you. You realize that you do need Christ and that you do need to surrender your life and your heart to Him and you can come today and we can pray and you can repent and trust in Christ. Or maybe you're burdened for your country just like I am. Or you're burdened for somebody in your family. Maybe you're raising somebody and you feel like, I can't do it. 
Or there's somebody in your family who, Lord, I don't have the grace. Come to the altar. We'll pray. And we'll see what God can do in your situation. As our musicians are playing, they're already coming. You come today. Please stand if you will.